This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Market here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He's the author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The views of our guests today are not intended as investment advice or recommendation with regard to any investment products, and certainly not those of Wisdom Tree. Um, but we have a very interesting show today. We'll be talking with Robin Brooks, who's chief economist at IIF. We get his view on on the Fed, and, and more interestingly, what's happening around the world. Professor, though, uh, we're going to get your comments to kick off the show. Powell came on. He is not pivoting. Uh, there's no Powell pivot. Powell is a staunch raise-and-hold type of narrative. What's your, what's your reaction? Uh, absolutely. No, nothing devilish there. Absolutely hawkish. Um, uh, the behavior of the market is pretty... Um, pretty understandable um we've had a sell-off a sell-off in the high duration stocks uh much more uh sell-off uh, in crypto quite a bit as more and more people say you know if i'm going to get more interest rate on cash uh you know i don't know how much i want to play around with the, either the meme stocks or the speculative stocks um uh, so we have a predictable i think it's also interesting that the 10-year yield is down in a way, that's almost telling Powell, be careful. I mean, you might raise too much and drive into a recession. I mean, why would the 10-year be down? Uh, the two-year is up, but the 10-year is down. So uh, the inversion of the curve has gotten more severe after his talk. So um, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of a skepticism of, uh, you know, do we have to keep on hiking and hiking? Now, of course... He did not spell out whether it's 50 or 75, as expected. Um, he did comment there's going to be a lot of incoming data, um, and uh, there will be a lot of uh, incoming data. Um, the price data is still coming in fairly good. Uh, uh, we had, you know, July readings on uh, PCE that were uh, uh, lower than expected. We also had actually a, a reduction in the um, – uh, University of Michigan uh, inflation expectations one year from 5.0 to 4.8 and the five year from 3.0 to 2.9, uh, something that Powell has actually stated uh, as uh, one of uh, the, the, the variables that he watches. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, I was a little disappointed. Uh, uh, you know, he didn't either address the issue of the collapse of productivity, which I've been talking about, nor did he address the issue about uh, data on the ground being different than data in the rear view mirror um, uh, uh, doesn't mean that that won't come into play when we actually have the meeting in September. You know, we're four weeks away. We've got a lot of data that's coming in. Now, on the, on the real side, um, uh, we're getting a little bit better data. Uh, particularly uh, today, we got a... Um, trade report that was much better than expected and um, as a result uh, has moved the needle uh, closer to one and a half as the estimate of GDP growth for this third quarter uh, from uh, uh, between one half and one percent. Now, one and a half is not great guns, let's face it, <laughs> for GDP growth, but uh, it is it is positive on the data uh, that we actually do see so far. So, um, uh, it's, it's mixed. I mean, we had weak inventories. The housing market continues to be way under expectations. Um, and um, uh, as, I, as I had mentioned to you, one of the biggest, uh, the, the biggest six-month drop in the um, uh, housing sentiment index of the National Association of uh, um, Home Builders uh, that, that we had actually ever had and experienced. So, 
uh, that that is certainly something that um, I think that uh, should factor into uh, Chairman Powell's uh, calculations. Um, we did get the money supply again flat from last month to this fund. We've had a decline in the money supply from March, uh, which I believe now, so that's a four-month decline. I think it's the I, I, I'm going to check the statistics again, but it is the biggest or one of the biggest uh, four-month declines that we have had in 75 years. Now, it's coming off of, as you know, the biggest increase that we had in 2020 and then another big increase in 2021. But uh, clearly, the money supply has slowed down. Um, um, commodity prices have crept up a little bit. Uh, which is something to watch, although WTI is 92. It's, it was under 90 at one particular point. Um, I expected the dollar to be stronger today. It's a little bit off, but uh, it's still extremely strong. So on the money supply, on the dollar supply, on many of the sensitive commodities, we're still saying the Fed uh, is tight. But um, at this particular juncture, uh, I, you know, I'm not going to venture between a 50 and 75. I think they don't know. I think they're going to look at the data of the next uh, four uh, weeks and 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 uh, and make their decision. So, so I, I know we, we were talking earlier this week, and you, and you thought if they did give some nod to recognizing the softness in some of these commodity prices and sort of trending down inflation, that would be very bullish. Is is there is the only thing the market needs now is the Fed? Is there things that could get the, the, the markets to climb this sort of wall of worry? Or is it all Fed all the time until we get to our next earnings cycle and, and see where things go? Is there anything that could be supportive the, for the markets? In my opinion, the biggest concern of the market is an over-tightening of the Fed. I mean, they were real, real late on going up, and are they going to be real, real late on going down? I think that's the major concern of of the market at this uh, particular juncture. I think I think you you pretty much see it in the statistics. I mean, why would the long term bond be down in yield right now if they didn't think, oh my goodness, there's a now I'm going to notch up my probability, and it's by no means a certainty, but these are all probabilities that the power is going to stay too tight too long. Um, uh, otherwise, if you know, he's going to say too tight because you see the lot of inflation and strong growth and all that. I, I would see the 10-year go up in yield. I wouldn't see the 10-year go down in yield. So the 10-year the is, 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 is saying there is concern there. The stock market is saying there's there's some concern there. I mean, you're you're raising the discount rate. Um, um, uh, the uh, the 10-year tips now, by the way, is, is 44 basis points. So... Um, um, there may be lower inflation, but they're, 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 they're tightening that. And we have the Dow down, you know, at this noon point, 625 points, which is still down percentage points, far less than, uh, the NASDAQ, which is, of course, a, a longer duration, uh, index. Um, what does this mean? I mean, I, I, I still think the June bottom is going to hold. There's going to be concern, um, uh, you know, earnings are coming in mixed. Guidance is on the weaker side, clearly, but I think that most of that has been factored in. So, yes, I mean, I, I think basically we, uh, you know, until we get something that the Fed is saying on the ground, uh, the, the economy is slowing. And again, the real data does not show great growth, but at this point, shows no collapse. We also had the first meaningful decline in jobless claims on uh, yesterday, on Thursday, uh, after having risen uh, rather steadily over the last three months. So it means that whatever decline we saw in June and July has temporarily halted with a moderate increase uh, in economic activity. I think enough to keep earnings uh, you know, from collapsing uh, or, you know, don't need to be marked down uh, dramatically unless the Fed goes 75, 75, 75 and keeps on going up until they see the official data go down on a year-over-year basis, which I would say would be a huge policy mistake. Professor, always great to get your thoughts. A very relevant day for that. 
Have a good near the end of summer weekend here. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you, Professor. I want to turn the conversation to our guest. We have Robin Brooks, who is a managing director and the chief economist at the Institute of International Finance. Uh, here he is in D.C. Uh, right at the moment, uh, so and, and very close to Chair Powell. Uh, well, if Powell was in D.C., um, where is he now in Jackson Hole? But uh, we're going to be talking with Robin. He before IIF, he was at the chief foreign exchange strategist at Goldman Sachs. He's been tweeting, a uh, very prolific tweeter, about all sorts of views on the currency market, which caught my eye, and I wanted to talk to him about. He was also eight years economist at the IMF Robin. Welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Tell us a little bit, for people who don't know the IIF, tell us a little bit about your organization, who you are, what you do, and and your role there. You bet. Uh, So I've been at the IIF for five years. Before that, I was a Goldman. I have a long and deep affection for the markets and all things finance, Uh, so I'm really happy to chat with you. The IAF was founded in the 80s, Um, so we have some history under our belts. And at the time, uh, the big issue facing many in the markets was debt workouts in Latin America. Um, And what banks realized at the time, and I'm talking about banks uh, whose names you will know, but most of us, most of your listeners may not, I'm talking about banks like Chemical Bank or Manufacturers Hanover, um, no one knew who holds what debt in what country and how much. And so it's made the debt workouts super complicated. And the IIF was founded basically as a clearinghouse for information and research on markets and in particular on flows to emerging markets. And so That's really our pedigree. Um, Our focus is heavily on EM as a result, but it's really on international finance. And, you know, so today's Fed meeting, the discussion that you just had with Jeremy Siegel, that is definitely front and center since the Fed drives so much of what's going on. Uh, Well, I definitely want to hit on emerging markets as an extended conversation. And there's this question, are some of these developed markets trading like emerging markets? So we'll talk about some of that, too. But uh, you were tweeting about what you thought the Fed should do. Uh, I think you and Siegel are pretty aligned from some of the comments I saw you making. But do you want to give your thoughts on what the Fed would you have liked to see from Powell today, how you see where the global economy is? And is, is Powell making a mistake in some of his comments? So, first of all, I think uh, Chair Powell um, didn't actually say very much that was new. Um, I think this was very much straight down the middle. He uh, signaled that they are data dependent uh, and that they are cautious. Um, So, uh, in keeping with that, he said that one low CPI print, uh, so we had a downside surprise uh, 10 days ago, that doesn't absolve us of the inflation problem. I don't think anyone can argue with that. Uh, one data point does not make a trend. And then he kept 75 basis points on the table for September. No one is going to argue with that either. If you're a central banker, you obviously want to keep your options open. You don't want to rule out anything. And so I would say in terms of near-term policy guidance, um, uh, Chair Powell's speech was very much uh, hewing to what he had said before. I do think that there was a message. The market is pricing rate cuts next year from the Fed and then more aggressively in 2024. And so I think the main message from the speech today was, hey, wait a minute, guys. You know, if we want to slow inflation, it means that we have to keep the Fed funds rate above neutral, above We have to be in restrictive territory for some time. And so I see the pushback from Chair Powell mostly on what markets were pricing for 2023 and 2024. Yeah, they were pricing multiple cuts. um, But I I think when I checked right even before we, we hopped on the line today, they were still pricing at least one cut in 2023 or around one cut. Um, And, is 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 do you see the economy shape? Do you think that's a, from what you know today? 
you know, obviously things will develop. Mm-hmm. But from what you know today, is, is do you think that's the appropriate pricing, or do you think they still need to start thinking more hikes into next year or at least no more cuts into next year? So let me talk about what I think the Fed should do, right? So a tricky thing in markets, as you know well, is making very clear the distinction between what you think should happen and what will happen. Uh, so what I think should happen, uh, let me tick through a couple things. We've started to get downside surprises on inflation. When we crunch the numbers, we think those downside surprises are real. The CPI report that we got on August 10th, We think that was a real downside surprise, the first indication that inflation is genuinely slowing. We just got core PCE for July. That surprised on the downside. Also, we'll get another inflation read before the September FOMC meeting. We think the inflation story is turning. The other thing that's happened is that longer-term inflation expectations never de-anchored. So, You know, when the central bank, when the Fed is worrying about inflation, in the end, what we're worrying about is a kind of wage price inflation spiral, uh, expectations getting out of hand. We're not seeing any evidence of that. The last thing that I will say is that financial conditions in the United States have tightened very significantly, especially in the housing market. Mortgage rates have risen far more than longer term treasury yields. And so the mortgage market, uh, sorry, the housing market in many parts of the United States is already in recession. Um, And so I think it's reasonable, first of all, for the Fed to pivot to slower hikes. So my forecast for September remains 50 basis points and then 25, 25 basis points in November and December. And more importantly, I think you want to start de emphasizing the signal that you're getting from spot data. So Yes, inflation is still high, but that's a lagging indicator. And so here you really want to worry about oversteering, over-tightening, and recession risk. The reason that I talk about recession risk, it's not our forecast for the United States, but we do have a recession forecast for the Eurozone. We think the war is a big deal. Uh, It's going to drag Europe into recession. We have very weak growth in China. So the broader picture, the global picture here is quite worrying, and obviously some of that's going to spill back to the United States. So some of the pricing, Jeremy, that you were talking about for 2023 and 2024, it reflects that. We're talking with Robin Brooks, who's the chief economist at the IIF. Uh, And so that comment, Robin, on the Europe is a good transition on sort of not predicting a recession for the U.S., but predicting a recession for Europe. Um, I mean, in, in addition to all the Fed discussion, I mean, you see a, da- a data point like say, like French electricity prices a year out of 25% today, like on a single day. Um, you see like these Dutch natural gas prices up three times in a few months, like 100 to 300 um, in, in this Dutch natural gas prices. I mean, it's dramatically higher than our, our prices. Is how much of it in the recession is the well, it's hard to disentangle the war, the energy crisis, all those things. Um, give us your view on what that means for the currency market, the euro. Um, you, you've been out there pretty pounding the euro a little bit, is what I would say on, on Twitter. So um, are you still there? Can you hear me? Um, yeah, I'm still here. Okay. I'm still here. Um, great. Um, so... First of all, I think you made the exact right distinction, which is that if you take a view on Europe, you implicitly have to take a view on the war, right? And we learned in the past six months that this is not something that's going to vanish anytime soon. The conflict in the Ukraine looks like it's headed for a long, drawn-out slugfest. And that is one of the things that for Europe will have major implications. One of the the amazing things about the IAF is just the constant flow of information. We have member institutions all across Europe. Uh, We have many mid-sized banks um, that are members of the IAF. And the feedback that we get from them is that there's been a very significant hit to business and consumer confidence. So investment intentions, spending intentions, Um, They started nosediving very quickly after the war broke out, and that is why we rolled out a recession call way back in March 
um, I think way before consensus and, and even consensus now at this point isn't really forecasting recession for the Eurozone. So the economic picture for the Eurozone is bleak. Um, the underlying uh, reason for that is that the Eurozone basically is um, a construct with one growth engine, and that is Germany. And Germany is a growth construct, construct that works on importing, has worked in the past on importing cheap Russian energy. Um, you use that cheap Russian energy to slap together stuff, and then you export it. That's it. Uh, and so Germany here is subject to a very big adverse terms of trade shock. The cost of energy has risen massively. You, you were citing these numbers, which are eye-watering, right? They're, they're crazy. Uh, and so the business model for many businesses here is currently in severe question. And so um, the call on the euro, uh, when we said that the euro would go below parity back in March, I think we were around 112, 113. We're now right around parity. Um, the magnitude of this negative shock to Europe means that the euro will and should adjust. There's nothing bad to that. I get asked all the time, like, does this, does this signal something, something bad about Europe? No, it's just what floating exchange rates do. I do think for investors who are listening uh, to your show and for your own clients, this is one of those cases where there is a true, at least to me, um, an investment opportunity because, for example, when you look at uh, speculative positioning in the in the CFTC data, which I do think carry a useful signal, markets really aren't very short euro at all at this point. So there is still reluctance to embrace the uh, recession view. There is reluctance to embrace the euro down view. Part of that relates to the fact that the ECB is still for some reason, flirting with rate hikes. This is like one of my topics. Like I've been talking about currencies for like a decade and in the ETF world, like nobody talks about it. I'm like the only one who cares about this. This is like my topic. But the most people, you know, when they go international, they sort of rely on a weak euro. And, well, they rely on a strong euro call. Most of them are sort of double, double dipping with stocks and the euro exposure. And so they're, they've been exposed to all this downside in the euro, to my chagrin. I've been trying to tell people you can just buy the stocks without the currency. But if you had to put a target on the euros back here, like what, what if we've con, you've been spot on with your call. So from 112 to parity, spot on. How much further can it go? I mean, nobody actually, nobody's out there calling for lower than 95. I mean, you've got a few hedge funds saying like 80, but 80 cents. But it, it, what, do, you, do you have a sense? What do you think is possible? So obviously, as you said right at the beginning, right, it depends on our view on the war. Um, so we have all kinds of crazy things that are happening. And, you know, the risk of tail events like this nuclear plant, which which went offline, you know, who knows what could happen? Um, so there are all kinds of risks that in a normal peacetime environment don't exist. But what I'd say based on the modeling that we have done, the interest rate market, so let me let me draw the contrast. The, the interest rate market for the Fed is pricing a total hiking cycle, including the hikes that have already happened around 325 uh, basis points. For the Eurozone, which is clearly facing major adversity, and in my view, going into recession, the market is pricing an ECB hiking cycle, including the 50 basis point hike that we got of 200 basis points. So if you just take the view that these hikes are unsustainable, if they happen, they will have to be reversed, uh, and that so that the ECB basically will flatline. If you, if you map that interest rate view into euro dollar, it takes you to something like 0.9 um, on euro. So at least we have another 10% move from here. So for any of your um, investors in European equities, that's a significant headwind, yeah. right? And so uh, there's definitely reason to think that either you want to hedge your exposure um, or uh, you want to do what you suggested, which is to just buy the equities outright. The... Um in terms of the when you so the rates uh, interest rates 
sort of what people call carry into the factor world um, has often been a factor that moves currencies. Value is another one. And, and I, I think on most traditional value metrics, people would say the euro is quote unquote cheap, like on a, like a Big Mac, you know, economist purchasing power parity type index. What are the other factors you say, or do you want to disagree with the, the point that the euro is quote unquote cheap on these value metrics? Any, any other points that you would make on, on factors that you think drive are important for currencies? So the thing is that, um, in my humble opinion, and obviously I'm just one guy, um, the, the market perception of the euro is off. Um, partly that's because circumstances have changed so radically. Partly that's because there is a longer running misunderstanding. If you look at the cumulative growth of the eurozone since the global financial crisis, so since 2007, um, the eurozone in aggregate has only grown around 5 or 6% in real terms per person, while the United States is up something like 13 14%. Uh, so that's the cumulative growth and real GDP per capita. Um, so when you think about fair value uh, for something like the euro, um, whether it's cheap or expensive, people have in mind the past history, which is that euro um, until around 2014 was around 140. It was always very strong and the dollar was always seen as, as very weak. Um, and I think all of that has completely changed. The easiest way to see that is um, that Europe used to run very reliably large current account surpluses, large trade surpluses. So that's basically exporting more than they import. And that's one of the things that's gone totally out the window. Um, Europe now is running unprecedented and very large trade deficits. And that's obviously this huge energy shock. So um, I really disagree with the view that the euro here is cheap. Of course, if you look at a price chart um, in Bloomberg or in something else, you know, given that the euro spent many years um, between 2010 and 2014 at 140, parity looks cheap relative to that. But you have to allow for the fact that the underlying situation before this shock was uh, weak. That's the weak growth track record. And the fact that the current account now has gone into deficit, which which really um, is, is a major thing for the eurozone. In terms of the things that you mentioned on currency drivers, so you're totally right. There's interest differentials. There's also oil prices, which play a role uh, for the dollar and for the euro. So there's a number of other things. Yeah, I mean, the last time the euro was surging, like in the 08 period, when it got up to 150, 160, I and mean, that was a time when the U.S. was not so heavy in commodities. We had a different dynamic, and it was sort of like you need a weak – you can't have strong commodities and strong dollars, like the opposite. Is, is, has that fundamental relationship changed, you think, like the U.S. being so different on energy imports um, and now, you know, having – being much more like a commodity currency in some ways? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is exactly one of the things that has really flipped on its head – uh, as you said, the emergence of ch of shale back in 2014 was just a huge game changer, right? And the U.S. is now, as far as oil is concerned at least, basically autarkic. We don't import, we don't export, our trade is balanced. Meanwhile, uh, Europe here is hugely dependent now on non-Russian energy supply, and that's partly why um, some of the commodity prices have spiked so much uh, in, in recent months. Um, so it used to be the case, as you were saying, when we had peak oil back in 2007, 2008, that this was euro positive. The euro in history always had a positive correlation with oil. Um, and that's over. Um, the correlation now is negative. And so when people run their models on whether the euro is expensive or cheap, that is one of the main things that they need to adjust that this correlation has flipped. And so you really want to look at any valuation signal that you're getting out of historical models w with a huge caveat. Well, this has been a great conversation. Uh, one of my favorite topics. So we got a great expert, Robin Brooks, talking the euro currencies. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. 
We've been talking about the Fed. We had Jackson Hole and Powell's speech. We had talked a lot about the upcoming, uh, I guess you could say, the, the euro in, in face of an upcoming ECB meeting and sort of broadened views. I think we're going to transition to Asia. Um, you said the other big stories happening this year um, in the developed markets, you had the euro as a big story, but the yen has been a standout currency. It's weakened even more than the euro. Uh, I think surprised a lot of people, and it's just been a, in, you know, maybe a reflection of the rates view. Robin, is, is, do you have a view on what's been happening in the yen? Is, is, do you have a different view on valuations in the yen? And, and sort of talk about that, that currency. So um, that's a great uh, topic to touch on, and you're totally right. The yen has just had a massive weakening move, and it did take many people by surprise. And I have to say, my focus has been mostly on the euros, so that move definitely took me by surprise as well. Um, looking in hindsight, uh, Japan is basically unlike the United States or the eurozone, because the BOJ does yield curve control. So the BOJ has set uh, two targets, one for the short-term policy rate, uh, which is at minus 10 basis points, and then the 10-year JGB yield is set by the BOJ at zero. And so imagine uh, earlier this year when U.S. longer-term interest rates, the 10-year yield was rising sharply, U.S. interest rates are rising, Japan's 10-year yield is pegged at zero. So that means that the rate differential, the interest differential, which we think is the main input into what drives currencies, um, that interest differential was moving massively against the yen. And so the weakening in the yen that we saw uh, is very much consistent with that and was basically about the global inflation shock, the hawkish pivot from the Fed, and therefore what was happening to longer-term interest rates in the United States. So now what is going on is that that narrative is shifting, right? We certainly, uh, myself, believe that recession risks globally are rising rapidly. I have an outright recession call for the Eurozone. I have very weak growth in China. Um, we think inflation in the United States is turning. So the entire global picture is shifting rapidly. And so from here, the yen view is very contingent on what you think is going to happen with U.S. longer term interest rates. And it's hard to see how we go materially higher. Uh, as Professor Siegel was saying at the outset, we've got kind of a yield curve inversion going on and that deepened today. Um, and so... Uh, uh, if if I am right that we are heading for global recession, uh, then a lot of the dynamic from earlier this year will basically go into reverse. Uh, global longer-term interest rates will go down. They will go back closer to the 0% target that the BOJ has for 10-year JGB yields. And so that's a source of yen strength. So um, we have seen hedge funds in particular pivot on their yen position. A lot of hedge funds in the recent weeks have flipped from being short the yen to long. So segments of the market, the faster moving segments of the market already pivoting to position for a global recession and yen strength. And I, and I kind of agree with that. I, I think here the risk reward to being short the yen is very poor. When you think about the longer-term economic implications from the weak yen, I mean, and, and you also, and, and just broadening it to the rest of Asia, um, you know, there's been, you could say Japan Inc. has become more competitive, and there's all sorts of more questions about, you know, the offshoring to China. Do you, do you think the, and you could, I, I was going to ask a similar question on Europe um, with the weaker euro. Do you think anything happens with sort of reshoring to Japan, to Europe, with these weak currencies and, and the additional questions of what's happening in China? Do you think that's a real economic thing that, that takes place over the coming years? So, um, first of all, you know, we have a global inflation shock. Core CPI, pretty much everywhere you look, is off the charts. Core CPI in Japan, so excluding food and energy, is zero. So these guys are unable to generate meaningful inflation, even in the worst global inflation shock that we've seen 
with some some huge spikes in energy and commodity prices. So Japan has a huge deflation problem. They're unable to generate inflation, even a massive global inflation shock. And so uh, I think the policy stance that they have to try and keep a lid on their own interest rates, uh, to use YCC, is certainly uh, justified. And, um, you know, one of the things that we've seen in the past is that the U.S., for example, would complain about what it saw as manipulation of the yen when the yen got very weak. We haven't seen any of that recently. And so I think that's partly because the inflation picture in Japan remains uh, so bad. But on your question of reshoring and friendshoring, you know, the last couple of years have been an interesting experiment because we've had the tariffs on China right under President Trump. Uh, we've had all kinds of dislocations in global supply chains. And when we look at the export-import data globally, there's almost no sign that global supply chains have changed materially, meaning factories haven't really been shut down in China and moved elsewhere. And intuitively, I think the reason for this lack of uh, friendshoring or people people leaving China is because in the end, the factories that have been set up, the productive capacity, that's the cumulative product of many, many years of investment, right? That is super hard to undo overnight. It's super costly. Who wants to be the CEO of some U.S. company? You take all your productive capacity out of China. Next thing you know, there's rapprochement, she and Biden are making up, and then you look like a, you, you look bad. So um, I think the reality is that CEOs are super cautious on this, um, and we have not seen any material change to the existing capital stock. Um, one of the things you were writing about recently, uh, again on Twitter, I get a lot of my information there, you, you talked about China versus emerging markets and that sort of flows were going uh, in sort of opposite directions for the first time, that there was some outflows from China, inflows to M. You want to talk about that relationship and what, what do you think, any speculation of what is happening? Um, if, if, does that stand, that, why that stood out to you? Well, you mentioned when we were talking during the break just now that one of the big disappointments has been economic underperformance of EM, right? And the economic underperformance in EM is mostly EM excluding China. China's actually done very, very well in the last two decades. Uh, one of the biggest laggards in EM has been Latin America, where growth has just lagged, uh, mostly Asia but also um, Eastern Europe. And so that's sort of been the problem child in the EM universe. Um, we think that's about to change now, fundamentally. Um, the underperformance in Latin America in particular uh, links, we think, mostly to the big shale revolution in the United States. So if you remember, oil prices totally collapsed back in 2014 and early 2015. Um, that was a huge game changer for Latin America because so many countries there are oil producers, are commodity exporters. So when commodity prices fell so sharply back then, that was really bad news. So that's changing. We've transitioned into an environment where commodity prices are much higher. That's structurally good for emerging markets and structurally good for commodity exporters in emerging markets. So when people uh, ask me whether I'm bullish or bearish, I'm, I'm actually quite positive on emerging markets and in particular Latin America because there's so many commodity um, exporters there is a separate dynamic, uh, Jeremy, which you just alluded to, which is that the invasion of Ukraine by Russia was a huge shock for markets. Even though the U.S. administration had been warning that war was coming, most investors um, that I've spoken to certainly took the view that you know, in the end, Putin is a rational human being. He knows that this will be economically very harmful uh, he will never do it. And in fact, 
uh, one thing that we saw in markets is that in the course of last year, uh, many investors left, for example, Brazil because they considered the politics there to be too unpredictable, too messy, and they were looking for something more stable, something more predictable, and so they went short Brazil, long Russia. Um, and that, in hindsight, has turned out to be a highly problematical trade, a very difficult trade, and people lost, unfortunately, uh, lots of money. The lesson that people have learned from that is maybe autocracies uh, without democratic checks and balances are not where you want to put so much money. And so some of the discussions that are happening, especially behind closed doors, are, you know, however messy we think Brazilian politics may be, uh, the dem democracy there is preferable um, to what we see in other places. And so it's in that context that people have also been asking questions about China, uh, that's been underscored by the saber rattling recently over um, Taiwan after uh, House Speaker Pelosi's visit there. And so I think the attitude in markets is changing. We saw outflows from China, which we really very rarely see in the weeks right after the invasion, so right after February 24th. Um, so all of March was basically outflows from China, even as the rest of EM got inflows. And then most recently, we've seen a return to that outflows from China and inflows to the rest of EM. Um, so broadly speaking, I think we may be seeing a bit of a game changer. China has been the big positive story in emerging markets for the last 10, 15 years. And I think we may be seeing a pivot away from that. Latin America, I think we'll see a renaissance and China will be on the back foot. Very interesting. We're talking with Robin Brooks, who is the chief economist at the IIF. They have a specialty on emerging markets. Uh, and Robin, this is a, I think there's a few things. So it sounds like commodities is not just a short run play. It's a little bit more of a longer term uh, cycle. Some people call it super cycle. The, you know, I, I've been surprised, you know, even with our response to the Russia uh, invasion, uh, we on our show that those words of, we thought people would be more rational about the whole dynamic that those were very similar messages as to what we were talking about on our show. Um, you know the the U.S. by sanctioning people. I mean my my view is that they haven't actually hurt Russia with the sanctions. Of they they sort of made U.S. investors they sort of zeroed U.S. investors and that's not really hurting Russia. Russia. I mean if anything maybe the oligarchs get their companies. Buying back the cheap shares that everybody else is being forced to dispose of. Um, do you think that dynamic can happen to China? I mean, China is 30% plus of emerging market funds indexes, and so you know there's an increasing worry of you know will China do something that makes them a pariah like Russia became the pariah, and that we then uh, makes emerging markets much harder to invest in. Any, any view on on that? So China is, is like you say, uh, a behemoth, right? And the global economy is second to the United States. Um, the economic picture there is changing. Um, and some of the zero COVID policy is really just the surface uh, of what is going on. When I talk to investors these days, there is a huge amount of bearishness on China, uh, and sentiment has shifted really, really profoundly um, from just a few days ago, from just a few uh, months and years ago. People call the institution sclerotic, um, the ability of the economy to adapt to changing circumstances, highly compromised. They link that to the politics of the country. So there's been a very profound change in sentiment um, on China, which may be coloring some of what we're seeing in terms of capital flows now in, in the short term. Um, what I would say, to give you an idea, um, we have had uh, since March a forecast for Chinese growth of 3.5%. That was wildly below consensus when we made it. The consensus was around 4.5%. Consensus has now come down to uh, just below 4%. Um, 
And I'm looking at people like Goldman who have a forecast of 3%. Um, so the evolution of the market here is very bearish. A lot of that evolution is more about structural weakness. Um, and so, you know, to what I was saying before, uh, whereas China in the past 10, 15 years was really kind of leading the pack in, in emerging markets, that, that may really be shifting in a more negative direction now. In, in terms of the you know, standouts for EM, you mentioned Latin America as something that because of the commodity cycle that you like. If you were to have to go to Asia and pick countries within Asia, um, emerging Asia, is there any views on others that you think are particularly well positioned or that you like demographically or, or other of the longer term trends? So if you look um, across the world, um, you know, as you said, uh, commodity exposure is a huge plus. Another plus is a vibrant domestic economy, a big population so that you have your own growth engine and you don't depend on exports for growth. And a great example of that uh, is Indonesia, um, where the picture is, in fact, so robust that the central bank hasn't had to follow um, the hiking cycle that's been massive across many emerging markets, so they've they've been able to take it slow. Um, India is another economy that comes to mind, uh, but there are more question marks around India because they are such a big energy importer, um, unlike Indonesia, who are basically flat. Um, and you also have questions around... Uh, some of the sanctions regime uh, that the U.S. has imposed, the U.S. and Western countries have imposed on Russia. You're getting all kinds of stories about Russian oil uh, being processed into diesel, for example, uh, in India and then being re-exported. So um, markets have more questions on India than Indonesia, but both satisfy the condition that they have strong domestic demand, huge populations, and so they can operate independently from this China nexus. On their currency markets, you know, is there a view on EM currencies, how they've held up versus the dollar? Uh, with the, you know, they were early to, to, to sort of fighting inflation, raising rates. Uh, any view on, on how EM currencies stack up versus the dollar? So that is a great question, and I love that you're making a distinction between EM and uh, advanced country currencies versus the dollar, because I think that distinction is really, really important. If you look at the dollar, it has gone stratospheric versus things like the euro and the yen and the British pound, but actually it's been more or less stable against most of EM. Um, uh, so EM here, thanks to very aggressive hikes uh, from some of their central banks, um, has been uh, doing relatively well. And in most cases, especially Latin America, we have significant undervaluations. You know, in Brazil, for example, here we still have something like a 20% undervaluation. We think that's that's a huge opportunity um, uh, longer term. They obviously have elections, which many investors are worried about in October. Uh, but we think a peaceful transfer of power, which will come, um, will be a big catalyst for the Brazilian real to outperform. So if you uh, look, for example, at how currencies have performed since uh, the July 27th FOMC meeting, when there was kind of a speculation that the Fed is doing a dovish pivot. I actually subscribe to that view. I think the Fed at that meeting um, was la la laying the ground for uh, slower hikes, which is what the pivot kind of means. Then Brazil, since that meeting, has been absolute top performer. Other top performers have been Chile, Colombia, Mexico. So the, the people in EM that are doing best when the conditions are right, um, are Latin American currencies. So since I happen to think that markets here are pricing too much for the Fed, so the market here is pricing five hikes for the rest of the year, um, more or less, uh, and I think we get four at most, 
uh, I think Latin America here is a great FX trade. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things, you know, we, we focus a lot on these currency forward markets, and it, it's one of the things where not everybody's focused on it, and, and again, people hear the strong dollar, but, uh, you know, whereas you now have these big relative carry trades in the euro and yen where, you know, you're, you're paid a few percent now, right, to hedge the euro or, or, or using the forward markets to, to get long dollars versus euros, it's roughly 3%, maybe a little bit less. In, in EM, if, if the numbers I'm looking at are right right now, I see an 8% carry for a basket of 15 countries in emerging markets. I mean, 8% um, relative rates higher in EM versus the U.S. Does that sound about what you would expect from... Yes, sort of I mean, um, you can get more carry than that if you've got the stomach for it. So Argentina, right. the carry is close to 90%. Uh, Turkey, the carry is around 45%. Uh, but uh, I suspect that the basket you're looking at has more liquid uh, places like Brazil um, and lots of other places of that ilk, like South Africa. Um, and so the carry in those places is somewhere between 5 and 10%, so that makes total sense. Yeah, I'll send it to you later as a follow-up. But yeah, their Turkey is in there, but, but uh, definitely sort of equally weighted more to like Brazil, Mexico, the whole the whole group that you were talking about. Um, we've, we've had a broad ranging conversation. Um, are, are there anything that we haven't covered that's a sort of strong conviction from you or your team that you want to make sure that we get at least two minutes on? You know, I think the, the, the big, um, big thing I want to message is that um, we are, I think at a big turning point, uh, you know, if you've talked about inflation being transitory at these uh, these days, you're kind of a laughing stock. But at the end of the day, what we're seeing, we think, is a turning point in inflation. It is slowing. We think we will get a Fed pivot. We don't think we will get a U.S. recession. So the overall picture is actually quite risk positive. Um, and so you mentioned the wall of worry that we all talk about, right? Uh, so the wall of worry is that we get a reasonable slowing in the economy, but things are just fine, and financial conditions in the United States remain pretty pretty um, constructive. And so for the United States, at least, uh, the picture, I think, is quite positive. That's a good way to wrap up. Um, we've been talking with Robin Brooks, who's Managing Director, Chief Economist at the IIF. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We had great conversation all about currencies, global markets, you can check us out on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Took. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.